0: And then now it's like a breaking point, right? I can't, my nervous system cannot take not one more traumatic experience. And so that's what you're seeing, right? Um, you're, You're seeing the unraveling of people who have already just been hanging on by a string
1: Welcome to Exit 43. My name is Jordan Fenster. There were, by some estimations, protests against police brutality in nearly 150 cities across the nation this week. At the same time, COVID-19 is killing people of color at a rate three times higher than their white neighbors. So today, as we continue our deep dive into the concept of inequity, we're going to look at trauma How it's passed down from generation to generation and present in the walls of our homes and in the air that we breathe. That voice you heard at the start of the show, that was Mesa Akbar.
0: I am an author, so I have authored uh, a book called Urban Trauma, A Legacy of Racism. It's a book that focuses on the traumatic experiences of people of color And um, looks at it from three perspectives um, historical, biological, and environmental.
1: Akbar explained that trauma can actually be passed down genetically.
0: We know now through epigenetic studies, which is a study of DNA and and the manifestation of different genes, that there is a trauma gene. uh, That gene is called the FKBP5, and we know that it is variated or influenced uh, by historical traumatic experiences through something called fetal programming. So when there is a mother who has experienced severe trauma, they will pass that trauma on to their children. Um, And now there's even new studies that are showing that fathers can even pass down their genetic marking of trauma to their children as well.
1: If you're gonna talk about inequity and racism in America, you kind of have to start a few hundred years ago.
0: You know, when you look at um, the descendants of African slaves, what that experience was for them, being captured, being tortured, being abused, being ripped from their families, being taken from their land of origin, the only home that they knew, stuffed in ships like sardines, many of who died within the voyage over to the Americas dropped off and split from their loved ones into different parts of the Western Hemisphere and then turned into property or what we would, what we call it, chattel slavery.
1: Fast forward a few hundred years. That trauma still persists, Akbar said, and she draws a straight line from the slave ships to police brutality.
0: But I think the best way that I can explain it to you is that there has, there's a study right now that's happening in um, in Georgia that's looking at inner city violence in terms of the idea of like a war zone. And what they've done is that they've started to look at comparisons through some genetic studies so looking at dna looking at markers different neurological markers that that community's hyper reaction or what we call hypervigilance to violence and what it's showing is that for children and families that are consistently exposed to violence the the trauma doesn't have an opportunity to subside right it's, you're always living and anticipating a trauma experience so if you think about this idea of war zones of course what comes to mind is like veterans right and their exposure to war zones when they are off at war and what they're exposed to and what they have seen in terms of comparison is that when veterans who are active duty and are able to come back into civilian life perhaps they're finished with their commitment to the military and then start to integrate back into civilian society you begin to see that some of the symptoms of trauma start to decrease um and of course with with treatment and the appropriate types of interventions you know most veterans are able to live adjusted lives right i'm not going to say normal because normal is relative but adjusted lives and when you make that comparison to inner city families this idea that they've been removed from the war zone and that it allows for intervention now to decrease their trauma experience is non-existent.
1: Now, I'd like to introduce you to Harriet Washington. I'm a medical ethicist. I write frequently about the
2: um, history of medicine and about contemporary issues through a medical ethics lens.
1: Washington was careful to say that the conversation needs to be about racism. Not socioeconomics, not race, but racism. That's a very important distinction to make. You know, many people, include
2: scientists, um, look at socioeconomics as an attempt to explain disparities that are caused by disparate racial behavior, racism. But you can't. Income, education, socioeconomics is a very, very poor um, indicator of how one's going to be treated racially. We're really looking at racism rather than socioeconomicism, and there are, many, there are a lot of data that show us
1: this is true. But while race may often be considered a factor in medical research, racism is often not, even though history seems to repeat itself.
2: Because we saw the same thing with HIV disease.
1: We saw the same thing with hepatitis B.
2: Again, this is not a novel phenomenon. Each time it happens, we seem to be caught off guard and surprised. And the reason, one reason I think we're caught off guard and surprised is that we're not used to looking at racism as a determinant factor. If we were, then we would be surprised when an infectious disease does not disproportionately affect people of color. We can't prepare for something that we've refused to acknowledge exists. It's important for people to realize that we're not always talking about malevolent actors. The system, unfortunately, is set up to be unfair. It's designed to be unfair since the Victorian era. And so you don't need to incorporate some snidey whiplash character who is going to evilly decide to treat African-Americans differently, no. The system allowed to, to work as it's currently working will automatically exclude people of color from the optimal care. When you close hospitals in an area where people of color live, when you have people of color who are um, not insured, when you have people of color who are treated differently by physicians, we know this has been well documented, all these things conspire, and you don't really need to introduce somebody with evil intent. All these things are going to create a system, or have created a system, in which people of color fare poorly, and that's what we're seeing.
1: Washington reminded me of the history of medical abuse against people of color in this country. But she said the issues are different now. And it's
2: true that African Americans historically have been much more likely to be used in medical research that was illogical, abusive, punitive, and based on mythology other than um, logic, and also was exploitative. These bodies were used to test medications and to perfect... um, understanding of disease, sometimes a flawed understanding of disease in a way that tended to benefit whites and not the people who were. Also, it was non-consensual, extremely important with people having no choice. That was historical picture. And today, we have not completely escaped that, not by a long shot. We still have African-Americans disproportionately used, but not at all to the extent as in the past. And frankly, we face different issues today when it comes to medical research. Although yesterday's treatment does have implications for the health status of African Americans today, there's no one to one correspondence. We can't say that the same things that happened today are happened yesterday because they're not.
1: More on this in just a minute. Exit 43
2: is a production of Hearst Connecticut Media. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to our newspapers by visiting ctinsider.com. Find more episodes of Exit 43 on our website or wherever you go for podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.
1: Welcome back to Exit 43. We're looking at genetic and environmental factors behind racism, inequity, and disease. So, you know, nothing too heavy. Here's author and Columbia University professor Harriet Washington telling the story of Joseph Goldberger. I think it's a good story.
2: He is one of my favorites, despite the fact that he violated some ethical strictures in how he did his work. I think that's important to acknowledge. But before Goldberger, we thought that pellagra was a disease that affected only African Americans. That was an infectious disease, and it was tied somehow to um, their lack of cleanliness and to racial um, predisposition to it. We believe that all through the Victorian era, all through enslavement, until suddenly a lot of poor whites in the South, not just black, began suffering from pellagra, trying to figure out why. Why are all these white people getting it? Well, it turned out it was not a racial disease at all. It was tied to malnutrition. African Americans were routinely starved in enslavement, and so they developed pellagra. And there had been an economic downturn where a lot of poor Southerners lost their jobs and were not able to feed themselves. And they too began suffering from nutritional deficiencies en masse, like pellagra. And Goldberger discovered this by taking prisoners and carefully constricting their diet until he found what he thought was a culprit, the missing nutrient. That was important because it it was only one of the ways in which white professionals and white people were able to designate black people as being biologically
1: different than whites. Let's just stop for a moment and note that Goldberger actually starved prisoners for medical research. There wasn't ethical abuse there and that was it.
2: The difference is, Jordan, that these prisoners agreed to it. It was still wrong. They were, unlike African-Americans, they were given a choice.
1: Washington acknowledges that epigenetic trauma is a reality, but she also pointed out the problems with that viewpoint.
2: Look at twin studies, which have become the gold standard for looking at diseases like schizophrenia. Is it genetic? You look at twins, and if you find one twin has been raised in a different environment, then you feel you have the control there, because after all, they're genetically identical, right? Wrong. They're not. Their DNA sequence is identical. Their environment, their history, what they've eaten and drinking, drunk, their experiences, all these things, as well as normal botany
1: processes, have actually changed their genetics. Instead, she focuses on environmental factors.
2: Why is it African-American children that are there in the inner city, in homes that are crumbling with lead dust everywhere, breathing in the exhaust of um, cars that are fueled with lead? cups of fuel of lead, living across the street from bus depots. This is a social setup. African-Americans were trapped in these areas, first, legally, by segregation, and secondly, by practices like mortgage redlining. These are people who were trapped in areas where poison permeated their homes. So it's a direct consequence. It was not due to something that happened to their ancestors. I'm not saying that things didn't happen to their ancestors, but I'm saying that what we're looking at are direct consequences of
1: exposures, poisonings that are
2: happening today.
1: Washington said something interesting, that this discussion about historical trauma versus environmental exposure is something of a red herring.
2: I'm more interested in the biological trauma, and there's a great deal of that. We have to understand that this dichotomy between nurture and nature is a false one. It's not always a a distinction between genetics and environment. Some exposures not only harm through direct exposure, but also cause genetic damage. Exposure to some hydrocarbons does that. DES, for example, a chemical that was given to um, pregnant women a long time ago, about 40 or 50 years ago, was found later on that not only did it cause harm in their children, uh, cancers, defects, things like that, but it was passed on to future generations. So the, the grandsons of women who are given DES sometimes have genetic problems. Uh, physical problems as well. So um, we're not always talking about an all-or-nothing phenomenon. We're not always talking about a mutually exclusive phenomenon. We're talking about genetics and um, exposures.
1: It's sometimes both. All of this, according to both Akbar and Washington, culminates in higher death rates for Black people from coronavirus.
0: I think that what COVID has begun to do, it is really... Peel back all of the smoked mirrors that we operate under. There's so many things that, as a society, we're like we're just not going to we're not going to pay attention to that. We we can't we don't even have the mental capacity to deal with it, right? So it's like oh that doesn't exist that doesn't exist that doesn't exist, right? Like yeah it does, but no it doesn't. And so I think like in order for like just preservation of our sanity, we don't want to address certain things that are blatantly clear, right? Like take a take police brutality, right?
1: This is Exit 43. On the next episode, we'll finish up our mini-series on inequity with a little on what we could actually, maybe, do to make the situation better. My name is Jordan Fenster. If you have a story you'd like to tell, or just need to reach out, please send me an email, jordan.fenster at Hurstmediact.com. Thanks for listening.